0: And we're going to pick up from there in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3. If you would, out of love and reverence for God's word, please stand with me as we read together these three verses, or four verses, three through six. Hear now God's word, for he does indeed speak through it. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let's pray together. Father, there are things in your word that are difficult to hear. There are things in your word that are encouraging to hear. And yet, Father, this is all your word. It is all for our good, our benefit, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and instructing. It is all a part of your grace, your fatherly love and care. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to listen to it, that we would hear your voice speaking to us as a loving father to his children. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There's a pastor in Memphis, Tennessee, by the name of Thaddeus Matthews, and what sets Pastor Matthews apart is his self-proclaimed nickname, and that nickname is the Cussing Pastor. Uh, Pastor Matthews is not afraid or ashamed to drop bombs of words that begin with pretty much every letter of the alphabet, and he has gained quite a bit of notoriety for his speech and his rationale for this is fairly simple he said in the old or in the, in Jesus's day he, they didn't use these words these are our words and and they're just words they're just words and i'm a i'm a fisher of men which means i need to come down to the level of the people and everybody uses these words and so i should be able to use these words as well even if it means using sexually vulgar words. Now, I think most of us here would easily agree that that's inappropriate for a minister of the gospel. The apostle Paul told Timothy that he was to set an example for the believers in a number of ways, and one of those ways is speech. And so it's inappropriate for him to, to do such a thing. And it ought to make us angry to a certain extent that we would see someone proclaiming the name of Christ and continuing to promote this type of speech. But my question for us is, if we can so easily see that it is wrong for a minister of the gospel to, to speak in that way, why are we so quick to tolerate or excuse it when it comes out of every one of our mouths? The Apostle Paul has fairly strong words for us in our passage today about our language and our behavior, um, and it's following on the heels of something that Jesus had said. Jesus had said that the words that we we say fl- come from an, out of the abundance of our hearts, and he said, "What comes out of our hearts is evil; it is murder." Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Those are the things that come out in our speech. They're, they're reflective of what is actually in our hearts. And the Apostle Paul says that those types of things have no place in the life of an adopted child of God. And in fact, what he says in this passage is that remaining in those things... Allowing those things to characterize your life actually disqualifies you from the inheritance that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. So if you are here today and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are clinging to him, what you ought to be doing as we look at this passage is evaluating your heart and your life to see if there is any such thing that is coming in between you and the godliness that God requires, and if you haven't yet put your hope in Christ, then what I would encourage you to see is that this type of behavior, this sexual immorality or impurity, is um, the cause for God's wrath, that God's wrath is coming because of these things and if you are have not yet put your hope in Christ it's only a matter of time before you face the fullness of god's wrath with nothing to save you and so i would urge you to hear what god has to say so that not so that you would feel despair but so that you would run to christ as your refuge in the midst of this you would cling to him as your hope of salvation and that you would pursue the holiness that God requires. So we'll look at this passage under two very basic headings. The first is a strong exhortation in verses 3 and 4, and the second is a sober warning in verses 5 and 6. So Paul begins, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as as is proper among the saints. So he lists three vices that must not be named. The first is sexual immorality. And the word there in the Greek is the word pornea, from which we get our word pornography or pornographic. Um, This pornea was considered at that time a largely gentile vice. Um, And if you remember The city of Ephesus was one that was characterized for rampant sexual immorality. You might remember that Ephesus was considered to be the home of the goddess Artemis, who was thought to give um, aid with fertility. And so some scholars believe that the worship of Artemis included sexual orgies, perhaps with cult prostitutes. And that word porneia can include that prostitution, uh, engaging in that, but it is a, a broader term uh, that might r- refer to any sexual behavior or attitude that falls outside of the bounds of the marriage between one man and one woman. So it is a general term. So even though it was culturally accepted and perhaps even expected, he says that it has no, place in the life of a believer. The second term is impurity. So the word there uh, could be just thought of as unclean or filthy, but the form of the word suggests very clearly that this is also sexual in nature. Um, Perhaps a better translation for us would be a sexually deviant behavior, uh, which is not fitting. So whereas the pornea might refer to the who of the sexual activity, this impurity deals with the what uh, of the activity, and both of those are forbidden. And the third term is covetousness, or a simpler translation would be simply greed, now it is possible, given the context with the other two words, that uh, what Paul is getting at is sexual greed. So if you think back to the 10th commandment, we say, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It's probably not referring to her cooking or her personality, but uh, that that union with the wife. And there there have been commentators dating back all the way to the ancient church that thought that perhaps this Greed here was talking about sexual greed, and it can also have a metaphorical meaning to just mean pursuing after uh, things that are not correct. If you look back to chapter 4 and verse 19, uh, when when Paul is talking about the Gentiles, he says, they've become callous, and they've given themselves to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But more likely, even though it seems like it might be out of place with everything else he's saying, he's probably just talking about greed as we would think about it. Greed where it is acquiring and hoarding wealth um, uh, and desiring after that like a love of money in the covet your neighbor's house or his vehicles or his bank account or just greedy to get more than what the Lord has given. So he's got these three vices, and then he says, these things must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. As if to say, in the community of God's family, there ought to be no association with sexual immorality or greed or covetousness there ought to be no relation whatsoever. Rather, there ought to be sexual purity, marital fidelity, a spirit of contentment and generosity. So he lists these three, and then he goes on to a second list of three things. In verse 4, he says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be no thanksgiving. So that first term, filthiness, um, the, these these three are sinful forms of speech that are out of place for a believer. The first one, filthiness, uh, could really just be translated ugliness. So it is a crass form of speech that is so crass that it feels out of place and unnatural. And it. Uh, in context, certainly has a sexual undertone to it as well from the term. And so it is um, discussing or even singing uh, vulgarities of a sexual nature. And you don't have to go too far into a hip-hop or rap or comedy skit library to know exactly what Paul has in mind, vulgarities that are spoken or sung. Then he says, nor foolish talk. The term there uh, refers to a talkative chatter, just needless, mindless words, perhaps involving gossip or slander, often associated with drunkenness and drunken parties. So if you've ever seen somebody overly talkative after having too much drink, you know what he's talking about there with foolish talk. And then third, crude joking. The term there for joking had, it was actually a positive term, a term for a quick wit. Um, wit was, as, just as in our day, it was applauded, enjoyed. Um, parties were enlivened by somebody who had a good sense of, of wit, but the crude part of it was where a good trait became something bad, where it now became a wit that was malicious in nature, or sexual in nature, vulgar in nature, and if you've been in a situation where somebody took uh, something that somebody said that was a fairly innocuous or innocent statement, and then with their wit made, made it turn from something innocent to now something inappropriate or uncomfortable or embarrassing, that is that crude joking that he's referring to. And he says these are out of place, but instead there ought to be thanksgiving. So whereas those three forms of speech are reflective of the world and of those former life, he says that thanksgiving, thanksgiving from the heart, thanksgiving that overflows to your lips, thanksgiving to God that is expressed is a uniquely Christian form of speech. So when we think about these two lists, My question to you and to me is how are we doing within the church? How are we doing within the church? When we think about sexual immorality, if we look at the divorce rates in our culture, we see that divorce within the church is roughly the same rate as those outside of the church. And I recognize that Divorce is not always as a result of sexual immorality, but it is a lot of the time as a result of sexual immorality. But even a less obvious form is the pornography pandemic that has been raging far before the year 2020. It is one that has been insidious, and it has infected our hearts. It has infected our eyes. It has destroyed relationships. And it largely goes undiscussed, untreated, there's no vaccine for it. And the church is seduced by this same seductress and smitten with her. Well, there's greed. Are you content with what you have? Are you thankful for what the Lord has given to you? And are you generous? Um, Or or do you find yourself always longing, being driven for more, more security in your bank account, more things in your house, bigger houses to hold more of your stuff? And there's your speech. Yeah, I mean, sure, there's there's a form of speech that you use here in this place around us. But when you're in your comfort zone... What's your native tongue when you are letting loose what characterizes your speech friends I think that um, we in the church have become far too complacent with these things far too complacent we have allowed these insidious forms of ungodliness to creep in and set up shop in our hearts and infecting our lives. And what's worse is, even when we're faced with these things, rather than excise these evils from our lives, we excuse them. We excuse them, and we give them a home. But the text says that this is a critical error of eternal proportions. Let's take a look at why. Because Paul gives us this sober warning. He says, verse 5, For you may be sure of this, That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You may be sure of this. Okay, so let's take a a look at a few things. First of all, this list that he gives here, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, those are the same three things that he had said back in verse 3. Now they're a person taking these things on—that's the list that he gives. He says that. Um, secondly, point, uh, look, take a look at how he says the covetous. He says that is an idolater. He—he's identifying coveting with idolatry. He doesn't say that if you're covetous, uh, you'll be prone to idolatry, or if you're covetous, that will lead to idolatry. He says. If you are covetous, you are an idolater. And then he says, those people that do these things have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now that that phrase, kingdom of Christ and God, is unique to Paul here. And scholars are somewhat divided about what it means. We see throughout scripture the kingdom of heaven, we see the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of Christ and God is unique. But if you remember back in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said that the Lord Jesus has been raised in the heavenly places and has been given authority over all things. So he is a king even now, and a king has a kingdom And what one scholar says, at least one, and I think this is right, is that this term here, the kingdom of Christ, and God is talking about two different time periods. The kingdom of Christ being the present time, Christ's earthly rule, and the kingdom of God pointing ahead to God's eternal rule, where when uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says, at the end, when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the father after destroying every rule and every authority and power so if that interpretation is correct what paul is saying is the sexually immoral the impure the covetous has no share in the blessing of god's kingdom either now or eternally they are apart from his grace they are apart from that blessing And if you remember back to Ephesians chapter 1, Paul had made this glorious proclamation that in Christ, we have received an inheritance that is ours. Peter says that it is kept in heaven for us, safe and secure. But here, Paul says that people who live this way have no inheritance. Have no inheritance Unless we let our theology get in the way of our interpretation of Scripture, remember that the book of Ephesians is not written to the world, but it is written to the church. Paul is writing to people like you and me. And what he is saying is, you must abandon this way of living, you must put aside these things, you must examine your speech as an indicator of what is in your heart, and you must do something about it. Your salvation depends upon it. You must wake up from a false sense of security, thinking that you can live your life unaffected. You must pursue radical discipleship, radical holiness. Now, an I know what you're thinking, because I thought this too. Come on, man. (laughs) I mean, we're talking about words. Like, joking, like, coarse joking, like, that's really going to um, bring God's wrath. Like, I haven't committed adultery. Um, Wanting things, wanting a better life, pursuing a better life, like, shouldn't we all do that? I mean... And it's almost like an anticipation of that. Look what Paul says in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Notice who the wrath of God comes to, sons of disobedience. Paul has been talking about in the beginning of chapter 5 that we ought to pursue the righteousness that God requires as beloved children. As adopted, beloved children. But what he's saying here is that God's wrath comes on the sons, not of God, but of disobedience. And so it's like Paul is putting before us two lives. He's like, you've got this former way of living, and then there's the the righteousness that God requires of you. And you might think that you don't want to leave this life, but don't be deceived. That life brings God's wrath because the way we live demonstrates Paul's saying that we are not children of God but children of wrath if we continue to live in this way. The way we live demonstrates whether we are children of God or children of wrath. So just a few thoughts that we did a pursue, it's important for us to realize that Paul is referring not to people who have ever sinned, but people who continue to live in these sins. These are the sexually immoral, the impure, the covetous. Um, And it's important to realize that this is not an exhaustive list. In our law passage or assurance of pardon, you know, he, in 1 Corinthians 6 Paul listed out a number of things, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy drunkards, revilers, swindlers. That was a broader list. He was saying those people don't inherit the kingdom of God, and we also know that even that's not an exhaustive list because God says elsewhere that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So it's it's not intended to be a list, but It's it's intended to refer to those who refuse to let go that former way of life. As it said in our assurance of pardon, such 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 were some of you. Such were. You no longer are. If you are in Christ Jesus and you have confessed your sins to Christ and are clinging to him, you may have committed sexual immorality in the past. You may have lived a life of impurity. You may have had a love of money that drove you. But that's who you were. Now you are in Christ. But that's why it's so important that you live as though you are in Christ. You put aside those things. You don't continue to live in them because if you continue to live in them, did you even understand the grace that you've been, you were given? The point is that we cannot, we must not, we cannot trifle with sin. We cannot excuse it. We need to pluck it out like a bad eye. We need to cut it off like a faulty hand. Our salvation depends on a radical and relentless pursuit of holiness, not because our salvation is based upon our ability to get everything right, but because it is the natural outworking of those who are truly clinging to Christ. All of the children of God will be made holy, will pursue The righteous life that God demands. And I think part of that comes from this little offhand remark that Paul says about covetousness. He says, the covetous is an idolater. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about that word greed or covetousness. He says, this means, of course, the love of money, the love of money as money, the love of money partly for itself and partly because of what it can do for us. The things we can buy with money, the things we can procure with money, the things we can do if we have money. In fact, the love of all that money can do and achieve, that is what Paul is condemning under the word covetousness. Greed, like Paul is talking about, is assigning to money the honor and the power of, And the hope and the dreams that only God should have. And that's what idolatry is. It is taking something that God has created and assigning to that thing the honor and the authority that God alone deserves. And you you can see it with sexual immorality, too. I mean, what do we typically say to justify? Well, I want to be loved. I want to feel pleasure. I want to have intimacy. I want to have control. But but hear the refrain. I want, I want, I want. It's wholly self-centered. There's nothing loving or God glorifying in it. Or think about crude joking. I want to be funny. I want to be smart. I want to be the center of attention. I want to outsmart my neighbor. I want to tear them down because when I tear them down, I look better. And beloved, this type of idolatry, it's natural for our sin nature, but it is abhorrent to the life of a Christian because God in his wisdom and grace has restrained the power of, Of idols to ever fully satisfy. He will not give his glory to another. And he has designed us to delight in him and him alone as our ultimate treasure. And never forget this. It is a rare thing that any human being would be able to see the beauty and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the beauty of our God. And it's by God's grace alone that we can even see that. But if we've seen it, and we've tasted it, and we continue to live in those sins, what does that say about our hearts? Have we really seen it? It's one thing for a beggar to dumpster dive for food because they've got nothing to eat. But for an adopted child of the king who has been given a seat at the table with the finest affair, how could he continue to go back to the dumpster to eat that rotten, spoiled, maggot-infested garbage? And beloved, that is the only solution when we are caught in these things, if we haven't really grasped it, is to run to Christ. To run to Christ and to feast on his grace, to delight ourselves in him, to hear of his beautiful and amazing love for us. And as we stand before his holiness, we see our sin and we confess it, and he forgives us, and we pursue the righteousness that is reflective of his love. And as we come to him, We ought to see things in this life for what they really are. I mean, consider the seductive lie that the world gives to you and to me. It tells us you need to work with all of your energy to get all that you can because you need to have enough money to be able to survive. You need to be able to get the things that you delight in. And there's no other valid pursuit than to have stuff, to have money, and to have that security. But God's Word says that God is the one who provides all these things. God is the one who blesses us with our daily bread. He gives us everything that we need. Or consider what the world says about sex. It says that it's a a basic need, it's a, it's a part of what we are. It's a recreational activity to pursue by any means necessary, whether it's in marriage or out of marriage, whether it's with an image of a partner or with any number of partners. But beloved, sexual pleasure is not the create is not created to be the end. Sexual pleasure is a part of sexual intimacy, which is part of the fullness of the fruits of marital intimacy between one man and one woman. But even marital intimacy is not the end, but rather a reflective, a a visible manifestation of the glorious intimacy and love that we were intended to have, that the church will have with her Savior, Jesus Christ, forever and ever. And so, Sexual pleasure ripped out of that context, while it may be a fleeting pleasure, (laughs) ends in despair and is destructive and never, ever satisfies. And so, beloved, we must run to Christ. We must understand things in the light of what he teaches us. And we must flee sin. We read it in 1 Corinthians 6 passage. Flee sexual immorality. And Paul told the same thing to Timothy about the love of money. He said, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And he said, but as for you, flee. Flee. Flee these things and run to Christ. These things never deliver the hope and joy and contentment. And what's more, it's because of these things that the wrath of God comes. But beloved, for those who do flee, flee from those things, flee to Christ. Our God has promised a hope that is eternal and is satisfying and glorious and is ours. The reward of union with Christ and a partaker of his glory forever and ever. Most of you are familiar with the story in Genesis of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was a exceedingly wicked city, and God had purposed to destroy Sodom, but first he he had purposed to save Lot and his family, and as Lot and his family were leaving the city, the message to Lot was, don't look back, don't turn back, flee to safety. Most of you are familiar with the story of the Israelites being rescued out of Egypt God had purposed to show his power among the Egyptians, but first he had planned to rescue his people. And as he delivered them out, the message to them was, don't turn back. Don't look back. Look to the good land that the Lord has set before you. Beloved, you know the story of how God has rescued you out of slavery to sin, and has revealed his grace to you. And the message to you is the same, even as he delivers you out of a si- the city of destruction, and Christ himself is leading you to His glo- your glorious home forever and ever. The message is the same. Don't look back. Don't turn back, lest you be destroyed. But look to Christ, in whom you will live and find your hope and joy forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ, our Savior. Help us to cling to him as satisfaction for our sin. Help us to cling to him for his righteousness and would your spirit purify us individually and even as a body of believers. We desire to know this love that surpasses even our wildest dreams and aspirations. We desire to be purified and to glorify you and to give glory to your name in the midst of this world. Would you help us to do that? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.